Coming to you direct from our super secret studio. Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, at CIA Spy Girl on Twitter. And we're broadcasting from the West Left Coast. And today I'm excited for a special episode. And I had special in quotes because I think it really uh, speaks to the title of our podcast, Washington for Beautiful People. Today, my guest is the chief Washington correspondent for Sirius XM, covering the White House, politics and foreign policy. It's on channel 124, the POTUS channel, the big picture. And he's the president of the White House Correspondents Association. It's Olivier Knox. Hey, Olivier. Hey, Emily. How are you? How was that intro? Was it good? It was good, except that, of course, implicitly I'm ugly, but that's all right. Okay. I mean, if they're good, usually what I just tell guests is that we should just end the conversation right there and just stop where we're ahead. But <laughs> if there was a couple of mistakes in there, we can just keep going with everything. Um, Let's just go. Okay. So one yeah. question before we really dive in. How often do people uh, fuck up your name and call you Oliver every day or every week? Uh, yes, yeah, so I've been in D.C. since uh, August of 1995, and you'd think that over time it would get better. Uh, no. But it's about about three to four times a day, probably. Okay. That's that's kind of what I was thinking, because people mess up my last name, which is almost phonetically spelled. And if they mess up that, I would think that your name would get screwed up all the time. So. Yeah, I, get, I, I, have, I have five or six emails today that refer to me as Oliver. Oh, so. nice. I hope you write back in some kind of Cockney accent. <laughs> well, I always want some more, right? So there it is. So I'm excited about this episode because it's a little about how the sausage gets made. The title of my show is obviously Washington for Beautiful People, and you are the president of the White House Correspondents Association. And the dinner that everyone knows about, which they call Nerd Prom, is where really Hollywood and Washington meets. It mingles together, and I think it's that one time a year where you know the two worlds really collide, and it's the one time where everybody goes, you know, where's C-SPAN on my TV? And they look it up because they want to watch it. Um, is that a pretty fair representation of sort of the the overall feel of the dinner up until obviously recently? I think it was truer under Obama and under Clinton than under Bush and under Trump. I think we tend to see a bigger influx of West Coast celebrities when the president is a Democrat. So there weren't there weren't a lot of celebs last year or the year before. Um, you know, in the in the Bush era, the uh, the primary celebrities were, I mean, I saw, I saw Wayne Newton one year, John Cryer another year. Um, so there were celebrities then. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's completely dried up in the, in the Trump era, but it certainly has dropped, has dropped off pretty significantly. Do celebs elicit or solicit invites, or does it just kind of happen organically through the different outlets? I'm just curious how they get a seat at the table, only because I've always wanted to go to nerd prom, so I'm just curious. But also, I'm just curious how, how that happens. Well, it depends because sometimes the celebs are invited by their parent company. So ABC has ABC News, but it has sitcoms. And okay. so sometimes they'll enlist, they'll enlist the stars from their sitcoms. For the longest time, Bloomberg reached out to big name celebrities. They obviously don't have sitcoms, but they would invite big name celebrities to the, to the, to the correspondence dinner. Um, so it really depends. There's a, a range of ways that this happens. 
the, the origin story for this is in the 1990s, in the Bill Clinton era, uh, a, uh, a reporter invited someone from one of the sort of Clinton era scandals, and it got so much coverage that everyone looked around at what used to be a fairly sleepy dinner, at least in the 80s and, and early 90s, and said, ooh, I can get press for this. And so all of a sudden, they started inviting um, either more controversial or uh, more famous people. Well, who is the person? Um, I think it was Fawn Hall who was invited. Oh, that's by, pretty good. By uh, by Michael Kelly. Oh, nice. That's a good. That's a good um, little scandal. It seems very sort of quaint now, but by today's standards, but that's pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. So so people started to use the uh, the, the dinner wasn't televised until 1993, and so there was less cause for inviting a celebrity guest because there was no chance you would ever really get them on TV. <laughs> but now. Now it's not just C-SPAN, you know, now a lot of networks and a lot of online places actually stream the C-SPAN feed. Yeah. So there's a, there's a much bigger audience for this thing than there used to be in the uh, pre-93 era. And also social media has, has just a little, little bit to do with that too. Just a little touch. Just a wee bit. Yeah, yeah a little. The, the tweets, the pics, the, the Instagrams, all those things. All those, what those kids are doing. Had it been something for you that you found just something that you accepted or was it to you a little bit almost annoying that that became more of the focus than what the focus of the dinner was? Yeah, I actually, I got, I got kind of, uh, I got kind of annoyed. I mean, when I ran for the WHCA presidency in early 2016, February or, or March of 2016, I, uh, I told people that I, if I won, I would take the dinner in a different direction. I would scale back the comic and I, I, didn't want my dinner to be remembered for the celebrities in the audience. Uh, at the time, what had happened was I'd read a piece in either Variety or Vanity Fair or something. That was all these, it was all these anonymous Hollywood types complaining about the, basically complaining about the presence of White House correspondents at the White House Correspondents Center. And I oh. thought, um, this is probably a pretty good time to retake this thing. You know, <laughs> uh, reclaim, it, reclaim it for the press corps, reclaim it for the First Amendment, and not have it be quite so, uh, quite so have people displaced by by celebs who frankly don't really give a rat's tail about about the press. No. Um, so it was so it was um so I I we serve these three year terms and when you win the presidency you're president your third year. So I ran in sixteen and early sixteen, um, served on the board two years and then as of last July I I got the whole enchilada. Do you do you think people really believed you when you said in two thousand sixteen I'm running and this is what I'm going to do? Or do you think people are like, okay, Olivia, that's cool. Whatever. We're still going to have the same old, same old. I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't like central to the platform. Um, it was, it was just one of many things that I said, but I, but I did serve notice on people that, you know, if they were, if they wanted the business as usual for this, for this dinner, then they, they would probably be disappointed. The fact is there's a, a fair amount of, uh, of wailing and gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands, uh, in, even inside the press corps about this annual thing, uh, in part because uh, of the celebrity factor, in part because um, it, it tends to be a, a platform for the entertainer more than a celebration of the press, and that's kind of too bad. Well, and it's historically had that context. I mean, it's had comedians or entertainers from way back, you know, way back in the day. I was looking, you know, from George Carlin to Gwen Verdon, which is a weird pick. You know, it's that's sort of been in the DNA of the dinner. So I think it's interesting. And we'll talk about this. Why, you know, the shift that's happening now and the blowback or the discussions that people had afterwards. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so there's been a wide range of entertainers at the dinner. I believe there was one year we had like a, a genuine like variety show with acrobats and, and, and jugglers and the like. So um, that's so, never yeah, good. It, it, well, no, it's no. You might as well have a mime. But, you know, one year, one year recently we had Aretha Franklin, which is pretty awesome. That's pretty fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so there's sort of a variety. There's a variety. The, the, the comics really came into their own in the 90s and 2000s because it was televised. And that really changed how, how this was all sort of perceived and undertaken and the rest of it. Well, I think also the comedians add, added something to it. It wasn't just entertainers. It was the ability to have people really call, call people into power to attention, to be able to truly make fun and to joke and to use you know, their First Amendment or whatever that is, to be able to, you know, to speak a truth that everybody is thinking. And so obviously things have changed with different administrations. Were you worried about losing that element now or did it seem more important than ever to lose that element? Well, the first thing I would say is in the past, most of the entertainers have gone hard after Republicans and pretty gen- have been pretty gentle with Democrats. Um, you know, one of the one of the one of the Obama folks who criticized me publicly for my decision to invite historian Ron Chernow, the, the author of Hamilton, um, publicly criticized me. And I said, OK, what's what's the heaviest glove that a comic ever landed on Barack Obama? And he said, well, there was that one really mean joke about the about the uh, Obamacare website. And I thought, you know, <laughs> that's just not that heavy a glove. Um, yeah. there were, so you're telling me there were no jokes about, you know, forgiving torturers. There were no jokes about not prosecuting Wall Street. There were no, like, none of those, those never made it in, right? And he said, well, no, I guess not. And I said, well, see, that's, that's part of the problem here, um, that it, it hasn't actually been that even-handed. There are some who've handled it very well and others who've not. I would say, from my perspective, um, there's going to be criticism of Donald Trump at this dinner. It's going to come from me, and it's going to come, I suspect, from Ron Chernow. I haven't told him what to say, but I was mindful that in 2016, he had some pretty sharp words for the uh, then future president. So it's not about muting the criticism. It's about having it come from a different place. Do you think that humor still has a place in politics? I want to go back to your Chernow pick, because as someone who at times has made a living being funny, me, I've always found that that's been such a powerful tool and a weapon when used really smartly. And so I'm just curious. I Now I always fall to that because I feel like it's it's disarming. It, it releases a fuse. And also I think it can speak a different type of truth and make people look at it. And so I'm curious from a journalistic perspective, is that is that something that people still see a value in or is it are people running away from that because it it either makes the politics seem less important or it takes the weight off of it? Well, so it, it, I think the, the problem is that it can do all of these things. I think it's still enormously powerful. I think that um, it, you know, satire and, um, and, and direct comic assaults on people in power, I think are, are valuable. Um, I think that comedy is never going to be, never going to be gone from politics, either as a weapon marshaled by politicians or a weapon, weapon marshaled against politicians. So this isn't about, I mean, I'm not banning comedy. I'm just saying. <laughs> Why do you year, ruin this one year? We can't have nice this one things. Year, this one event. But you understand, though, I, obviously, and that's what I want to talk about is when you chose Chernow, which I didn't hate the idea because I'm a big Hamilton fan. But did you expect the kind of blowback that you got? Were you anticipating yes. it? You were. I was wondering if yes. if you were like, oh, it's going to be bad, and then you saw it and you thought. Oh shit! This is a little bit worse than I thought. 
No, it's what I expected. It's what I expected. Um, with, with one exception, one person who said, that's it, now we're in the handmade sale. Um, <laughs> that was just, a, just, just a touch over the top. So um, a little hyper. No, I, expe- I, I expected it. I absolutely expected it. Um, and I, I just decided I wanted to be true to my conception of this dinner and true to, to you know, the, the decision that I had made and the promise I'd made. And, um, and so I stuck with it. And I, I think um, it, it, was, it was not hard to expect, if only because there's a segment of the audience that uh, wants, that wanted to see, you know, and had wanted an annual event where a comic ripped into the Trump administration. So it was not hard to expect that that segment of the audience would get uh, worked up about my choice. How did you decide on churnout versus, you know, a host of other people? No pun intended. Well, I thought about, I thought about um, uh, what I wanted was a, a historian to kind of put the current moment in, in, in historical context. And I always found Chernow's writing to be very lively. And the couple times I saw him speak, I thought he was really good. Good anecdotes, good sense of humor, lively, not droning on uh, as some of my uh, college historians m- might have. So I hope uh, I hope they're not also, listening right now. Uh, uh, I think we're dead. Uh, um, so you. Uh, so I, I want I wanted someone who I who I knew would be knowledgeable. I knew would be entertaining, and kind of because of the musical, sort of sat at the intersection of history and and pop culture. And so for me, he was kind of in that sweet spot. Did, what was the, when you approached him, did he think you're kidding or was he receptive? What was his, I'm just curious what his response was to this kind of ask considering the Michelle Wolf experience from the year before. He, uh, he took a little bit of convincing, but uh, he was into it. I mean, it, it didn't take, it didn't take that long for me to win him over and, and to convince him that this was a good idea. So uh, I'm, I'm psyched. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Now, you were saying you're also going to be speaking. Do we know if Trump is coming? When does he have to, does he have to have like an RSVP and be like, okay, by this date, you have to let us know if you're coming or do you think he's coming? Oh, I think we're, we're all expecting a tweet. You know, I don't think that, it, I, I don't think that these things go through the normal channels ever anymore. Uh, so I think, I think we'll probably get a tweet, you know, maybe he'll call me the fake news, fake news media, honcho Knox. Well, I, this is a good opportunity for him to all over me actually. Um, I, I hope you get a nickname. Great. No, oh my I, God. I, I have no idea. I have no idea whether he's coming, but it would it would just be so against type, right? He's got this shtick where he goes and does a rally in some swing state where he makes fun of us for sitting in our tuxes and celebrating celebrating ourselves, and um, and he you know pretends to be salt of the earth and 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 goes out and does this rally as he ramps up his reelection bid. I just don't, I mean I don't I don't know why he'd want to come. Well. First of all, I had this impression of him getting an evite on his computer and opening it. I don't know why. Clearly, that's not the case. But I could see him attending only as a victory lap, him saying, I, you know, I told you all Michelle Wolf ruined it and now I'm here. And I could see him doing that in his own sort of warped mental thinking, thinking it was his own sort of F you and he wins this way. I mean, no? I guess. Or is that I guess it's possible. giving him more credit than it probably deserves? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, this dinner is going to give out prizes to people who covered this administration. And, and you know, they, if history is any guide, it's going to be people who wrote, wrote and reported things that really ticked off this administration. So if he wants to come honor people who, who cover him every day and, and hold him to account <laughs> or help to hold him account, like, okay. fine. 
Okay, so maybe he won't come. When you put it that way. That's my that's my bet, but I you know I could be proven wrong. Well, I'll put some money on that at some point, but I don't think I think I'd lose on that one. Do you know who will come in his place? I don't think no, Sanders will we show don't up. Know. Okay, I didn't know. We if don't know. The, the first year, you remember the first year, he uh, not only uh, didn't show up, but he he decreed that no one from the executive branch could come. Um, and so we don't know. We have no idea. But it's not about the president of the United States. It's about the people who cover him. It's about the men and women of the White House press corps and beyond. So um, whether he comes or not, you know, this thing's happening. For you, I would assume, and I think it's safe to say, you've had a harder presidency than your predecessors because of all of what has happened with fake news and sort of not even sort of, but just these direct attacks against the media. Had you, was there anything that could have prepared you for what the onslaught of what you had to deal with before this? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be sort of cheeky, but yeah, being vice president of last year. Um, oh, okay. I, well, that was I, was, cheeky. I was surprised. I was surprised uh, that I didn't even go one full week after taking over before I was making public statements. Uh, sharply criticizing this administration. In fact, the first the first one was about was about Caitlin Collins, the CNN reporter who asked questions in the Oval Office, and they made the White House mad, and so the White House disinvited her, uh, barred her from a uh, what was a, a, a public essentially a public event for all the uh, press on on the White House campus. So I wasn't even a week into my tenure when I was denouncing them for doing that. I was actually uh, just pulling the curtain back a little bit. I was about to go. Uh, live on the air on my show when that happened. And so basically I, I was I was doing my interviews and I was having the, my board operator mute my microphone so that I could start typing my statement. So I'd ask a, ask a question, ask a question, mute the mic while I type frantically, ask another question, mute the mic while I type frantically. But I had, you know, I had Caitlin Collins. I had, of course, the Jim Acosta battle. Oh, yeah, um, I think we we all remember that one. Um. I had the president celebrating a congressman for his criminal assault on a reporter. Um, I had uh, a recent one in, in Hanoi at the summit with Kim Jong-un when the White House uh, retaliated against reporters who called out questions by barring them from the next event. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been pretty active. I mean, the, the, <laughs> on, the, on the upside, you know, they do respond to these public call-outs and they don't like them. And uh, they usually... They usually end up reversing course with, with the Acosta situation. Of course, it required litigation. Um, and we filed with the White House Correspondents Association filed a, an amicus brief there. So, yeah, no, I didn't expect that, the, that, you, that our lawyer would be quite so active and I didn't expect to put out quite so many statements, but they make it easy for me sometimes. You well, know, it's just, pretty easy. I, mean, they, they, I was going to say, can you just clarify what an amicus brief is just for folks? So it's, a, it's a friend of the court brief, basically. So it's, if you have a stake in the outcome of a piece uh, of, an, uh, of, of a lawsuit, you can file a brief laying out sort of an expert view. And we provided uh, an expert interested view in the process of credentialing, what a hard pass is and how it is attributed um, in, in order to defend Jim and, and to argue that the White House had no business confiscating his, uh, his credentials. How does that work in the process of litigation? Is it the precursor to going full on Legally, is it, how does that work? No, it's like a sidebar. It's like, it's a side, it's basically a side brief. So the main brief is filed by CNN against the White House. And then we file and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, CNN has a point and here's why. And so it's, it's almost, almost like supporting evidence for CNN. 
Yes. Okay. Yes. That's what I was just to lay it out. Cause I know I've seen a lot of the verbiage and just to make it clear for everybody. Okay. So you say that they don't like the criticism, but yet I feel like it's just this continued pattern of the end. You know, we just saw it at the press conference with Brazil, the, you know, the media are the enemy of the people and it continues. How can they say they don't like it when that rhetoric continues and the actions continue? It, to me, it seems so in contrast with, with what they're saying. Well, I'll give you, so just on a, on a, just on a concrete level in Hanoi, they, uh, so they barred these reporters who'd asked questions at one of the, what we call the pool spray, those brief public moments where the photographers and the members of the traveling press pool are allowed into a meeting with uh, the president and a, and a foreign leader. And after, you know, after my sort of my broadside, they reverse course and they let people back in to the to events after that one. So um, the, the question, I think, is who the they is here. Okay. I don't think that my statements, my, my statements don't make a scratch on the president, but, you know, he's got a, he's got a lot of aides and um, some some of them are attuned to uh, to this kind of public conflict, to the idea that this doesn't make them look good. So he doesn't. He doesn't care. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't I, I've never seen yeah. any evidence that he particularly I, cares. No, I don't think he could give two shits. I don't think it, I don't think it crosses his mind at all. No, I think that's right. But uh, he's got people who work for him who do, who do think about this stuff. Who care about optics. When you complain, yeah. does it just, again, sausage getting made kind of question, does it go straight to Sarah? Do you just pick up the phone and go, Sarah, look, this is, this isn't cool. This is bullshit. You can't do this. Or how does that formally happen? Because she has to know and their their team has to know in the comm shop that when they bar reporters, when they kick out Acosta, they're going to get pushback. So how does how does that technically work from you all or from you? So by the time you see my statement on a public, uh, public broadside, things have obviously gone terribly sideways. Usually what happens with Sarah is they will do something or not do something. And I will reach out by email and by phone and say, I need to talk to you about this thing. And uh, we, we touch base. Uh, I lay out my case. They lay out, lay out their case. And if we don't have a resolution, in other words, if they don't do what I want, then I've <laughs> got to go and, 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 and do, something, do something more public. Um, so it, it's, you know, we've got to keep the lines of communication open because a lot of what I do is actually just logistical. You know, I, I, I was recently in a big uh, meeting about the acquisition of two new press vans um, that will carry reporters in the, motor, in the motorcade. That's the really glamorous stuff that I do. I was going to say it's very time. sexy, but explain uh, after you, I wanted you to finish your story about Sarah, but I think it's important that people understand that it's, that's also the logistics of what you do and what the association does for all the correspondence as well. It's enormously practical. It's enormously practical about making sure, you know, the TV folks have, uh, have pictures and sound and, the still photographers get their pictures and the print reporters get their quotes and ask, ask their questions. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, not to be pompous, but it is, it's the practical application of the first amendment and trying to make sure that everyone who covers the white house gets what they need to do their job. So a lot of that is totally unglamorous. Uh, it's not me pounding the table, going all James Madison on them. It's much more being like, Hey, you know, <laughs> that event that you, that event that you closed to the press, it may as well not have happened. So why don't you open it? Um, it's that kind of stuff. And then every now and then, you know, there's a, there's a bigger problem. And that sometimes requires me, as I said, to go to start pounding the table. So 
with the with the press briefings or the lack thereof, obviously there's been a lot of pushback and a lot of noise about how they're almost non-existent. What can what are you all doing to either increase the rate of them or to make an impact so that we actually the American public we get them again? That's a really good question. I mean, we've we've made it very clear to to the White House that um, we want these to come back. The problem is the president doesn't. So uh, I don't expect them to come back anytime soon. Uh, you know, there are other ways of covering the White House. I, I, I've always told people the best way to cover the White House is not to cover the White House. It's to call your sources in Congress or the agencies or foreign embassies or think tanks or former officials. It, it's much more efficient. But that said, the briefings are an opportunity for a public give and take, a public accountability. Um, and, and so there, there's, no, there's no replacing them. It's just, I don't know what to tell you. It's, 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 going to, it's going to resume when they see a utility to it. And I don't know when that's going to be. Because I, I was, I think it was Sanders, she was saying, oh, you know, you have access to him in the White House, you know, when he's, and, or, you know, when he's on, when he's taking off and, you know, his helicopter. But that's, to me, not a replacement for the type of dialogue that you, that we used to get with a press briefing. And you know, it's it sounds like basically there's only so much pushing we can do and it's up to them. But I I just didn't know if there was anything, not physically, but anything that could be done. But I it sounds like there really isn't as opposed to just making the displeasure heard. I, I, I mean, I think that's about right. I mean, because he is taking a lot of questions. The, the challenge here is, is what does what the what does the briefing do? And the briefing does a couple things. One is. If you're a small outlet that only has a couple people in Washington, the briefing let you know, here's a specific time set aside for a Q&A with the press secretary and or other senior officials. And so you could leave Congress, leave the Pentagon, leave whatever else you were covering, go over to the White House. And you knew that when you got there, you would have a set time at 2 p.m. The press secretary was coming out and you could ask some questions. Um, and the other thing is the kinds of questions, sort of clearing out the kind of underbrush of the news. Hey, is that meeting still on? You know, who are you talking to about this? What's your reaction to a natural disaster over here? Uh, and the, the, the way they're structuring it now by making it a lot less formal means that instead of having a definite set time for questions every day, it's more at the president's whim. And so, so that's, that's what's so, uh, that's what's so unfortunate about, about, about the fact that these briefings have, uh, have, not completely gone away, but they're definitely an in, in, in endangered species. What's the reaction when there's public calls when you and others say the rhetoric of the enemy of the people is not only corrosive, but it's dangerous? Do they understand it? Do they just say, that's Trump? Because it truly, I mean, it's having impacts. We're seeing it. And it, it truly is dangerous for just not only journalists, but for our democracy as a whole, do they get it or are their hands tied that they can't control the words that come out of his mouth? Uh, it's all of those things. I mean, I, you know, it's when, when unbalanced people will do unbalanced things, just stipulating at the top. But when you see someone whose hit list looks like it was drawn from one of the president's speeches right down to the Pocahontas nickname for Senator Elizabeth Warren, Warren. you know, you, you can't, you can't just completely decouple these things. And, <laughs> We've had to create uh, a resource for our members to, for those who, who are threatened, who get death threats, because that's now a feature of uh, this republic in 2019. 
And uh, so we, you know, I think they're aware that it's that it's dangerous at the same time. Their public facing argument is that that's just crazy and that no one will act on this. And in private, sometimes they'll say, oh, come on, everyone knows it's an act. Or sometimes they'll say, well, what about the rhetoric directed at us? I can't go to a restaurant anymore. People surround me and scream and I worry for my family, et cetera. I, I hear all that, that I'm stuck on the, on what you said about, we now have a feature where reporters have a place to write down their death threats because that probably yeah, never happened the, the, before. That to me is shocking and that should, but nothing is shocking anymore, but that to me is, it should never ever happen. And the fact that that is now a feature that we have because reporters and journalists are getting threatened, that that should be some kind of, you know, stake that there can be, but nothing moves or the goalposts keep moving. So we just go, okay, that's fine. And then we move on to the next, to the next item. Well, we, I mean, obviously we don't because we're the ones getting them and it's always kind of so what do you do? And, and terrible. Well, I mean, you know, here's the thing. There's a real world application to all of this, which is that my, like my kid, who's barely a teenager, I've had to tell him like, look, if you come home and there's a package on the stoop and it's not, you know, and it's from someone and not a company, then leave it. Um, my, I, I've been assaulted by a, a, a actually a pretty large number of people over my career. Um, physically was, uh, or verbally? A, physically, physically. Uh, and, uh, in late, in late 2000, a supporter of Al Gore jumped into the press pen and threw my laptop into the sand. Um, in 2004, a John Kerry supporter threw batteries at me. Jesus. 2004, a Bush supporter spat on me. Um, aides to various senators have put their hands on me to push me away from their principal. Um, but I still divide my career into pre and post February 2017, because uh, that's when the president first used uh, enemies of the people. And a couple of days after that, uh, I was driving my kid someplace, probably a soccer game or soccer practice, and he burst into tears. And I, I was startled. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, Papa, is, is President Trump going to put you in prison? Jeez. I heard what he said about journalists. Um, and then the, the following year, we took a family trip to Mexico, and he was kind of sour mood uh, on the way back. And he said, and then he brightened up and he said, if president Trump won't let you back in the country, at least uncle Josh is a really good lawyer. And Ugh. so I do, I do take this very personally. I do take it very personally because it has had this kind of impact on my family. You know, I never imagined I'm not, I'm not a war reporter. I frankly, I lack the guts for it. I'm not a war reporter. It is, uh, it's really unsettling and infuriating that uh, my kid worries about my physical safety merely for the act of covering politics in America. Is this something you, you're, I was thinking, cause you have your, you get to give a speech and this is, you don't do. as, and I was going to say previously, you don't have the opportunity. It's usually just the president who gives the speech, correct? No, 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 no. The, 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 the president of the correspondence dinner, the, the president of the correspondence association always gives a speech. Okay. So this is your, your time to do it. Are you, do you know what you want to say? Is it, I you mean, you're not, as good a preview. I was going to say, was that a preview? preview as anyone. Yep. So I didn't, are you going to, I was like, oh, cause I know with me, I have no tact. I would scorch earth it and I would leave no one behind. I drop a mic and kick some dirt, but obviously that's probably not the best way to do it. Do you, are you nervous about giving it? Are you, will it be something that it's to me, I, I, I would think it'd be incredibly fulfilling to be able to to speak this frustration, to speak this truth, and to be able to to have everybody hear that, especially if the administration is there. 
But is there any pressure for what you include? I'm just curious how what goes into all of that. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's entirely up to me uh, what I say at this thing. Um, it's it's stressful just from the point of view of public speaking and public speaking on TV. I mean, I do TV hits, but I'm always nervous. But in some ways, you know, I, I said earlier that sometimes they make it easy for me to denounce them. Uh, and what I mean is that there's no really uh, no, there's no mean, there's no, there's no possible alternative when, um, you know, in like any Acosta case, right. They made it easy yeah. for me. If they'd called, if they'd called Jim a jerk or worse, I don't even know what I could say on a podcast. If you, they'd called Jim. I've literally dropped the F bomb. You can really say anything you want. I but you're the host. You got some privileges. Okay. I do. But so like if they called Jim an asshole, I'm not sure what I would know. I, I'm not sure I would know what to do. Because I, I don't tone police. This isn't about, you know, gosh, those are really mean words. It's, it's about something more than that. Um, and, you know, it's about some pretty basic First Amendment principles about the president not getting to pick and choose who covers him, which is what they were trying to do. So when I say that they make it easy for me, it's, they, when they go after sort of bedrock principles, it's not like I have a, a meaningful choice. Oh, I could just stay quiet. Um, this, I, this feels the same way to me in that, you know, I've got this platform. I have this deep concern uh, about that kind of rhetoric against the press. And so, like, you know, I, I will probably have a couple of light announcements and, you know, probably a joke about being the first Frenchman to have this job. But the meat of this, the meat of this has to be, you know, a, a defense of our role in the republic and uh, a criticism of the way the president is constantly trying to undermine that. It's fine. I was just thinking, I, this is the first time I, I wrote a piece recently and it was, I was really excited about it. And it was the first time I've written pieces before that people came after me and said, are you, are you worried about what Trump's going to do? And a, no, I'm not worried. I don't think he's caring about that, but he goes, their concern was basically to, to what you're speaking to, not to the same level of, oh, they're going to come after you. Are you afraid you're going to get, you know, someone's like, are you going to go to prison? And I thought, this is so silly that I'm dealing with this. And it was, I got a lot of these kind of things that I can't imagine what it is like day to day to feel that every kind. Single, every single time I put out a statement, Emily, every single statement I've put out criticizing the White House, I've gotten a torrent of abuse on Facebook, on Twitter, via email, via phone, um, death threats, uh, 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 insults about me and my family. I mean, it just, it's every single time. Um, but you know what? Like, if you don't speak up, they, they win. So do you, when is your tour, your tour? It's not like you're going to war, but kind of is. When is it? When are you done? Uh, mid July. Are you going to be happy when it's over? You know, I will, for one really sort of lame material reason, it's about 20 to 25 hours a week. And, uh, when I'm done, I'll be able to focus entirely on my show and, and I'm hopeful that getting 20 to 25 hours a week back will, will help me sort of lift my game on that front. So that's really, that's really why I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Can I, I ask? Could probably get my, I could, could probably get my ulcer treated. Oh, well, you know, that's, that would be nice. Yeah. You know, the next 20, 25, 20, 25 hours should help with that. That's not good. Can you yeah. bill it back to Trump? I'm sure you had something question. to. I'm sure you had something to contribute with it. Maybe they can do the copay. <laughs> I, they're not big on. They're not big on uh, on, on no. healthcare over there. 
No, I, that's what I've heard. So be, we're, we have a little bit more time. I had a quick question. Is there any, you were there. I'm just, this is just me being um, nosy and curious. So you were there when the whole Michelle Wolf thing went down. How awkward was it? Uh, it was pretty awkward. Um, I mean, I was sitting next to Sarah who sort of sat there stiffly and the, uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a little bit tense. Could you laugh at all? Or were you were Cause is it like, I make you're... it a point. I, I go into full poker face mode whenever that, whenever I'm up on that dais, whenever there's an entertainer, I try not to, because the problem is the perception that is that you're either laughing. Like it's not that you're admiring the way a joke is structured it's not that you're laughing at like a really good one-liner. It's not that you appreciate that this person has just uh, uh, skewered uh, an indecency or a hypocrisy or whatever. It always comes across as a, as a partisan act. And so in order to not give that impression, I try to go stone-faced. When it was Unless o- they make fun of the press. If they make fun of the press, then I'll laugh. You will laugh. Okay. Did you, when it was over, did you think, oh, shit, what has happened? Or did you not realize? Um, did you realize it was going to be a oh, shitstorm? No, 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 no. We knew. <laughs> we knew. We knew right afterward. I mean, the, uh, I think the the abortion line we knew was going to be an issue. Um, <laughs> it was a strong we, joke. We suspected that the conjuring up of an imaginary tree that was then dropped on a uh, senior advisor to the, to the president I'm, was probably I'm, not going to go over super well. Although a um, well-structured Kellyanne joke, but I, I will leave that. I will leave that judgment to you. Okay. You're, it was, you're the comic. I, it was a well-structured joke. Um, I did take, I, the only thing I took offense, like I get you, it's Michelle Wolf. So you hired a wolf, you got her. My thing is I still don't understand why people took, the comments about Handmaid's Tale about Sarah's looks. I, I still, I've, cause I've listened to it numerous times just from a comedic perspective and I don't see it. And I don't, for me, I think that's more of Trump and GOP's trying to stir controversy over a joke that wasn't about looks. There's been plenty of looks jokes. Joe McHale made one about Pelosi that was clearly about looks. She made one about, um, but Chris Christie clearly about that. I didn't see it as that. And I was curious, did you see it as a looks joke? Um, I think it certainly has the potential to be interpreted that way. So did the, uh, sort of the softball coach joke. Um, but honestly, like, you know, the, the, there is, there's always some element of bad faith outrage after these events. Um, and, uh, and I try not to get caught up in that. Um, but you know, I, I, I heard from a number of people who are, uh, reliable Democrats, classical <laughs> sort of classic American liberals who said they turned it off, um, who said they didn't find it funny. Um, and, um, you know, it's, I don't care on some level. Um, but you know, it certainly didn't, it, it what, what I found sort of more problematic was what she said afterwards when she bragged that she didn't give her, she didn't give a crap about the people in the room and that she went out there to quote, burn it all down. Yeah. That was more, that was more problematic to me. It um, was. I see why that could be an issue. I. Yep. I was going to say. I think that whole. I think. I hate for people to get the impression that that is why, Ron Chernow was chosen because that isn't why that was done. Am I correct? It's okay. It's not why. 
I mean, it certainly didn't make me rethink my decision, but no, I, I, as I said, I was, I was telling people this in February and March of 2016 when I was running for this job that I wanted to make a change. I mean, it's sort of hard for people to, to, to grasp just how bloated this thing got and how, and how it was about the celebs and not about the reporters. I mean, it's bad enough that there's that moment in the dinner in the last 15 years or so when the president of the association says, hey, you know, if you cover the White House in any capacity, whether you're a sound engineer um, or, or an on-camera correspondent or a writer, whatever, stand up. And you can see that it's not, uh, it's not quite one out of every 10. And um, that's always been kind of hard for me to sort of to, to, to come to grips with. You know, there were parties around the dinner thrown by news outlets where those news outlets correspondents and staff were not invited. Um, so it got really it got really bloated. And um, this is uh, this is a little bit of belt tightening as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it was. Well, it became, I kind of thought it felt like the Oscars because people would talk about their after parties. I'm like, there's an after party? They're like, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of after parties after the nerd prom. I'm like, I need to get an invite for this. But yeah, it, it didn't, it seemed to have lost that feel. And I, it's, I was very torn. And I, I I'm sure I, I said that to you or mentioned it between the choice to have not a comedian, although I understand it in this context because of what's happening, obviously, with, with this administration. So I just, I think it's important that people don't think that the choice was done as, you know, as, as pandering to the white house, because that isn't it. No, no. Look, go back, go back and look at what turnout said in 2016 about Donald Trump. You tell me if that sounds like someone who's ready to pander. Oh, let's hope um, he brings the fire. <laughs> but also, you know, some, some of this, I understand people who think that this is a, that this is a retreat. I totally understand that. I understand people who say, you know, that, that humor is the best vehicle for doing this. I totally do. I, I, I do get that. But some of this actually amplifies my concerns. Like this is not, this is not former CIA officer dinner, right? This is our dinner and it should be more. Wait a minute. How did I get involved in this? Well, because you're telling me, like, you're, you're weighing in on what you think I should have done. And, and no, I'm not I'm telling you what you should have done. I'm just saying I, I see the different things. It's not about, I, look, I always want humor in any situation because I, that's my immediate defense. I use humor to disarm. I use it to have conversations because that's, that's my tool. I'm not making a judgment call either way. I always like to see it because that's what resonates with me. But just to put out there, not to get defensive, but continue. <laughs> no, but so, but so, you know, again, I, I want this to be about, about journalism, about the first amendment. Um, and, and again, if, if I cared, I mean, if only for me, there will be criticism of the president from that podium. Um, it just won't be in these, uh, what you consider to be well-structured jokes. What I considered that was a little shady, by the way. <laughs> I hope when you said it, you had little air quotes for well-structured jokes. Cause I'm doing air quotes right now. No, I no, I air, air quotes on a podcast seems kind of defeating. Well, I do them all the time, but then I call them out just because I know that it's a little asinine that I'm doing air quotes and I'm literally doing them right now. Uh, the reason I wanted to have this is obviously I come from very different background. This isn't journalism is not my world, but now that I'm podcasting and writing more and talking more, it's interesting to see the reactions I get. And I've not experienced anything like this, but it's. I do get a little bit of it. And also from a place where I've always used humor. It was interesting to me 
to hear your perspective, and I wanted other folks to also hear that as well, on why choices were getting made, why decisions were done, and sort of the history to put it into context. I think people understand how corrosive the administration has been to the First Amendment. I think people get it. I think people are starting to understand how dangerous it is. And I think this event in some ways is is symbolic in a way as well. And to be able for you to be able to speak that truth and for other folks to be able to do it, I think it is important. But I like a comedian, sure. But it's not about me as we've discussed. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, it's, that's that's fine. I understand that people. I understand that people who are not in our world would prefer to see a comic. Totally get it. So you need to ruin I mean, I it. I had all kinds of. I had I had all kinds of suggestions for this. Like who? Way, what were the suggestions? Uh, I had I had a contingent that wanted uh, to abolish the dinner. I had a contingent that wanted uh. Uh, that wanted Larry the Cable Guy. Oh. I had a. Well, that's I not even contingent- funny. Listen, everyone's got an opinion about this yeah, thing. That's a is, wrong, is, bad is, opinion. And that is one of my least favorite things about it, is that it's become this thing that everyone has an opinion about. Wait a minute, so um, who else? I'm curious. Know, I want to go shit on everyone's um, opinion. Who were the other comics suggested? Larry the Cable Guy did not come from a Democrat. Uh, well, the argument was that if I invited him, then Trump would be sure to attend. And I had to explain very calmly that the purpose of this dinner is not to get the president to attend. It's to <laughs> celebrate the press and the First Amendment. Um, and they loosely so, interpreted the uh, word comedian if they thought Larry the Cable Guy. I, I, I have never, I don't think I have ever seen uh, the aforementioned Cable Guy perform. So, so I'm, I'm in a bad place to judge. Well, do you, is that a call for everyone to send you clips of Larry the Cable Guy? No. Just to tweet them no, at you? it's not. No. I feel like that's what you're trying no, to say. Like, no, you, bad podcast audience. No. So if you, everyone's hearing, I think that's what uh, what you're saying. So, but yeah, no, I'm just curious who else. Just making a note. Send Olivier Larry the cable guy. Cool. I'm curious. You who, are a monster. You know, I like to end things on a really high note. Uh, I'm nobody else you can think of. I'm just curious what people would think would be a good replacement or a good yin to yang after after Michelle was well. Well, the, a lot of it was suggesting people who would either appeal to the, to the or that they thought would appeal to the Trump folks or, um, or, or who would be so watered down as to be uh, inoffensive. And I didn't, that wasn't, that wasn't of interest to me. Um, that wasn't, you know, that's not the point. Um, this should be someone who's entertaining the people in the room first and foremost. No. Uh, not, not someone who is you know, acceptable, palatable, desirable for, for the administration. This is our goddamn dinner. It's not the White House's dinner. Well, we're not there to celebrate the president. We're not there to celebrate the president of the United States. If um, Ron falls ill, I can do a tight five. I do great crowd work. And um, yeah, I can open just throwing it out there. I, I appreciate the offer very much. Emily. I Thank hear you. a rejection that's going to be coming. If I could... <laughs> Well, wait, wait, I just don't want, I don't want, I don't want to induce you to go poison Ron Chernow. Oh, no, I'm just saying like, if his car didn't work, if he couldn't get there, if his tires were slashed, something, you know, who knows? Right. His tux didn't show up. Exactly. I I am not building a perversion center for you to harm, to harm my historian. Tanya Harding decided to show. Who knows? Who's to say? (laughs)
Who is to say? And I know that half the people be like, Tanya who? And I feel old all of a sudden. I want to say thank you so much. And for everybody who is listening, you can visit deepstateradionetwork.com and support all of our amazing work. You can be a member. And if you do, you get access to all this cool stuff, like one-on-one interviews. You get to hear podcasts like this one, this amazing one, where our call to action is to send Olivier Knox, Larry the Cable Guy tweets and information so he can be inundated with it. But you can also support all the good work we're doing. And we're trying to find you some really interesting folks to put on our podcast. You can hear these great conversations. You can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at CIA spy girl. You can file a, uh, follow Olivier Knox at OK Knox on Twitter as well. Um, and thank you again for coming on. I, this was great. I'm so appreciative for you to share the, all this backstory and give the story to our audience. So thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Talk to you later. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.